So good to be here. Hey, Indy family, I get to teach here in this last countercultural conviction series. If you've been here, this has been a, a fun series. It's been an intense series. It's covered a lot of things. It feels a little bit like uh, we do pre-marriage counseling a lot, my wife Aubrey and I, and you kind of cover the big things that are going to be and are issues in marriage going forward. And countercultural is sort of a way to stop as the church and say, what are the issues we're facing. So a little bit feels a little herky-jerky because we're talking about gender one day and then we're talking about generosity another day and then we're talking about salvation. But these are the things that as the church we need to really wrestle with. And I get to talk today about salvation. And my hope in all of this is that you would experience salvation more than anything. But as I teach and I've been kind of prepping what to talk about and salvation, the kind of core thing that the church is about, I want to help us just understand salvation a little more this morning. So some of us come from uh, maybe a long lineage of Redemption Church life. And if you do, there's a good chance you've heard the words reformed. Raise your hand if you ever heard the words reformed. So a lot of you. Some of you even have been g- gone through classes on what we say reformed theology. It's basically around this idea that we serve a big God, so big that he's also hugely involved in salvation. We use the word God's sovereignty. So some of you have heard messages about salvation a lot, and that's good. So I don't want to just get up here and just repeat the same thing. Tom Schrader, one of the founding pastors who's now passed away, used to teach through these doctrines of grace, and he would take about five to ten weeks every two years, and he'd stand up over at Redemption Gilbert, and he'd teach this doctrine, this doctrine of salvation. So two months, this phenomenal teacher takes all this time to unpack what I'm going to teach in about 25 minutes. So lower your expectations. But I do have five points. And they're not the five points that some of you might be used to. You've heard the five points of salvation, five points of Calvinism. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. I actually stole these from Twitter, which is a much deeper theological well than some of you. But I saw this, I was praying about, okay, how do I teach salvation? What am I going to teach? How am I, what, what passage do I want to come from as I tackle this? And I saw this Twitter account, and this guy posted this thing. I said, that's what I want to teach. And here's what it is. So I'll give you my message, and then we'll walk through it. Here's the five points. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved by God's grace. We are saved because of God's love. We are saved into God's family or God's people. And we are saved for God's glory. Five points of salvation. We are saved from his wrath all the way down to we are saved for his glory. So that's what we get to walk through today. So first one, we are saved from God's wrath. If you are new here, if this is your first time and you're a little skeptical of church and the first point from the first sermon you've heard is God's wrath I apologize, but I promise it's not as bad as it seems. Let's just see, in this passage, Ephesians 2 kind of walks us through and almost gives us these five points uh, without a lot of extra work, having to jump around too much. But I want to read chapter 2 there, verse 1, down through verse 3. And you, Paul's talking to the church, so if he was preaching, gateway, y'all, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Let's pause right there. So Paul says, apart from salvation occurring in your life, you are like the rest, children of wrath. You are sons and daughters. I am a son of wrath apart from Jesus in my life. Now, as we think about why are these countercultural convictions that we hold, this point right here is the tension point with culture as far as talking about salvation. The God that culture has created is anything but wrathful. He's sort of a hippy-dippy grandpa passing out ice cream to all these kids, regardless of what the kids or grandkids think about him. He's sort of a secondary thought, but this says, we are children of wrath, namely God's wrath sits on our head apart from Christ. That's, I don't want anybody to be mad at me. But the Bible says, apart from Jesus, the God of the universe, his anger, his wrath, sits on you. You You are a child of wrath. Now here's what some of you are, as I moved to Phoenix and I'm trying to kind of evangelize people, none of my neighbors follow Jesus. None of the people we've come into contact with in new sports follow Jesus. Now, I'm not saying Phoenix is more pagan out here. I'm just saying I've kind of had, I haven't run into anybody that says, you know what, I believe the same thing as you. Most of them say, ah, like this one, this little Eston, he's in our neighborhood, seven years old. He's like, I'm like, you believe in Jesus? Well, we're not Jesus people. We're universe people. I said, well, Jesus created the universe, so you're a Jesus person whether you like it or not. (laughs) But if I was to press on my neighbors and friends that I've made, the tension's going to come up. How could I follow a God that is so angry? You want me to follow this God who currently has wrath towards me? Yes, because he wants to remove that wrath. But here's the sort of, even like I used to be a youth pastor, great decade of my life, but a lot of youth as they get older, there's this thing going on called deconstruction where they're starting to look at this faith that was handed down to them from the church and from people they love and they're starting to deconstruct and say, I don't like this ethic about sex. I don't like this attribute of God. And the wrath of God is always kind of key part of those deconstruction discussions. I follow people online that are deconstructing and it's just so ironic because they are so against the wrath of God, and they are some of the angriest online people I meet. So you're not against anger. You just want to kind of define where anger is appropriate and allowable, and you don't want God to be the one to be able to do that, is sort of what I'm gathering from our online interactions. Here's the question I would ask people. Do you really want to follow a God that is not angry, that has no wrath, Do you want to be in a marriage where there's unfaithfulness and there's no anger, no wrath, instead apathy? Like we don't want a spouse that doesn't have anger towards the things that are hurting our union. We don't want parents that aren't angry at the right things. Our little baby, sweet Ozzy, came in our room last night. He had a nightmare. What's going on? I wish I could say I was the best parent, but I'm like, Aubrey's got this, but I was listening to the conversation. (laughs) And there's a guy in a golf cart trying to run him over. How sad for a three-year-old. Like, what is, it's funny, but I wake up and I'm kind of looking through my sermon notes. I'm like, if a dad 
saw somebody with any sort of desire to hurt their kid and was not angry, you would think that person is a lunatic. God has to be angry if his love is going to be legit. And we've been saved from God's wrath in the person of Jesus. I looked up a few quotes just on, just in this passage. I just want to remind you what God's wrath is against. Let's look again. It's against this. People who once walked according to the course of this world. Raise your hand if that's you. That's me. That's everyone. Following the prince of the power of the air. That would be Satan. So it's an anger against those of us walking in this life, being influenced by Satan, whether we realize it or not. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, just the spirit of rebellion that is alive and well because we live in a fallen world. Among whom we all once lived, and this is where it just flattens all of us, lived in the passions of our flesh. That's us. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Therefore, because that's the life we were all living, we were all once children of wrath. So when we talk about salvation, we have to get at God's wrath. We all sat under at one time. The wrath of God, one author says this, is the holiness of God, I love this, stirred into activity against sin. The holiness, the uniqueness, the, the unlike anyone else in the universe-ness of God, that about him makes him have to be angry towards anything that sin is affecting. And his wrath is stirred up and he goes after it. However, Romans says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the wrath is gone. First John says Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation means wrath absorber, meaning wrath was sitting on us, coming for us, awaiting us in eternity. God's wrath was going to be there. And then a propitiation came, the person of Jesus on the cross as he died in our place rose again in victory, he absorbed all the wrath that once sat on us. That is good news. One of my favorite people in the whole world, Noah Lau, I don't know if he's in here, but I'm telling a story about him. If he's here, he can talk to me after. Noah Lau became a Christian because of his parents and the life of this church. And I remember he's like just a sweet, good-looking kid. He was walking down the hall one day just smiling like ear to ear. I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? And he said, you ever know that feeling where you just know you're forgiven? He just skipped on all smiling. Just, <laughs> Do you know that feeling? Like that's what we've been saved from, the wrath of God. One guy at our church, we're trying to, North Mountain's trying to figure out how charismatic we're going to be. Like are we going to be sort of a, are we going to be like a, we're kind of feeling that. We've got some very charismatic people, but they're kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to be the oddball. And I was talking to one of the guys. I'm like, you just got to let it go and see what happens. He's like, I don't know how people can be sitting in their seats knowing they are saved from the wrath of God. I have no other way to worship than to get crazy. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Indy's crazy over there. That's well done. We are saved from the wrath of God. Jesus has become our wrath absorber. Amen. That's the first thing. We are saved from the wrath of God. Here's the next thing. We are saved by God's grace. Where do I see that? Let's go to verse 4 here. How do we actually experience this salvation, this wrath removal? Verse 4, the most beautiful two words in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's stop there. By grace you have been saved. Josh, what did you do during your salvation? You were an 18-year-old idiot. Nothing. God's grace came for me. Aubrey, what did you do to earn your salvation? You were a 20-year-old, lost, insecure young lady. Nothing. God's grace. Luke Simmons, what did you do in Denver? You kind of had nothing. God's grace. By grace, you have been saved. And now as we enter into the church, this is where the countercultural sort of becomes counter-Christian culture in terms of how you view salvation. Who gets credit? For my salvation, your salvation, our salvation. Paul says it's by grace you have been saved. By grace. By grace. What is grace? It's the unmerited favor of God. The word there is gift. It's the gift of God given to us. We just received it. And as we think about salvation, the idea, most world religions have some sort of uh, punishment, uh, wrath of God behind it, and need and uh, means of salvation. What's unique about this place, Christianity, is we give all the credit to God. Everyone else is trying to kind of get a piece of the credit pie. Like, as a, why, how are we saved? If you were to ask my Muslim friends, Abdi, how do you get saved? I've heard this a million times with them. Well, there's like a scale. Good and bad, and I need the good to be like this. That's not grace. That's a payment for good works. If you ask Mormon friends, one interesting thing being back here, where I live, there's way less LDS people around. So I have less and less of those conversations, but I know what they go like. How are you saved? And it goes some version of using the words worthy. I need to live a life worthy enough. Well, when is worthy reached? And it's like, it's the same as the Muslim. Ah, it's not grace behind it. It's repayment for a life lived well under the watching eyes of God. And that is not what Paul, by grace you have been saved. So leave kind of deeply religious people out of it and just kind of the American way to salvation. What are just general people banking on? Because everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to go to hell. Most Americans still kind of say, ah, I'm some version of a Christian. Well, what's the thing that kind of sets you apart, gets you right, gets you saved, whatever word you would use? And here's what I've just picked up on. I think most people think they're going to be saved by their good intentions. Because they know they fall short in their actions. But I meant well. I'm on my fourth marriage, but I mean well. I yell at my kids, but I mean well. I'm a stingy person, but I mean well. Because we generally judge other people way more than we judge ourselves. So when we look at our, how am I going to get saved? Well, if my intentions are good enough. I think Luke Simmons is the first guy here to say this, but he said some version of this. We judge others by their actions, and we always judge ourselves by our intentions. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. So salvation just in a general, not faithful Christianity, but just American, watered-down, Western Christianity is like, well, if my intentions were good enough. It's like Ecclesiastes says God is going to see every deed. 
spoken word, every action, every thought, every motive, God will lay bare one day. And the wrath of God sits on those that aren't covered by the blood of Jesus. Here's the other thing I see more and more, just as kind of this secular humanist. We are going to be saved by human progress. And I just want to laugh. Like 2020, hello? Do we really? Really? We're the bunch that's going to get us out of this mess? We had a sickness roll in and we were going to burn this mother down like overnight? Like mother and father not on speaking terms over two men they'll never meet in some election that's happening on the other side of the country. We're going to be the ones that get this place right? Really? Like I went off on a neighborhood kid a while back. You see those signs? (laughs) I know I'm not the one to fix this place. But I'm also the one I think called to tell people where they're falling short of fixing this place. Well, we have those signs in Phoenix where the, we believe all, love is love, all li- black lives matter. It's kind of like seven you know, cultural statements that are all very important, and I agree with. In this house, we believe in kindness, you know, all this stuff, which I agree with all that. But this kid who has a sign in his yard is being a turd to the neighborhood kid. I said, dude, turn around. Read that sign that you put in your front yard for the rest of us to read. Are you being any of those things? No sign, no matter of like, yeah, we're the kindness bunch. No, we're not. We're the progress. No, we're not. We are not going to progress ourselves into salvation. We have to bank on one thing, and it is God's grace, Period to fix me, to fix us, to fix this place. God's grace is the only thing that's going to fix this. Here's a quote from Philip Yancey talking about what most of experience in life versus the unbelievable reality of grace. It says this, from nursery school onward, we are taught how to succeed in this world of ungrace. The early bird gets the worm. Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. I know these rules because I live by, by them. Kindness, love, fill in whatever you want with whatever yard sign you have. Yet if I care to listen, I hear a loud whisper from the gospel that I did not get what I deserved. I deserve punishment and I got forgiveness. I deserve wrath and I got love. I deserve a debtor's prison and instead I got a clean credit history. I deserve stern lectures and crawl on your knees repentance. Instead, I got a banquet feast spread before me. In other words, grace. We are saved strictly by God's grace. And we as a church believe wholeheartedly that it's God's grace that does the saving from beginning to finish. And that has to be your hope. Because we are not going to fix this on our own. None of us. The best of intentions in this room gets us here. God's grace is the thing that's going to take us home. Amen? We are saved only by God's grace. Takes us to our next thing. Why? 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 Why grace? Why did God do it? Thirdly, we are saved only because of God's love. So his grace is not disconnected from his loving character. It's not just gifts he's giving out to be philanthropic. He gives out grace because he loves. Where do I see that? 
because of the great love with which he loved us. Let's go to verse uh, five there. In love, or this is chapter one, verse five. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love, in love, in love. In the Old Testament, it's this covenantal love, this hesed love. In the New Testament, it's four types of love. Agape would be the unconditional love of God. And here's what I've learned as a church planner that I learned here, and it's the exact same thing in Phoenix. If I moved anywhere else in the world, it'd be the exact same thing. Here's the main problem with y'all. You ready, note takers? We do not understand the love of God to the degree and depth and scope that his love actually exists in our life, period. Now, granted, I get all the situations and sin and suffering that comes out of that, but at our core, we are not aware, living out of the reality of God's love for us. Why did he save us? Because he loves us. We do not get the love of God nearly like we should. And love is this interesting word because it sort of like means everything and it means nothing. Like in our current cultural moment, it means it's like a junk drawer term. I love that, you know. But what's interesting is there's not a new word coming along, I think, that we need to kind of grab hold of. It's like my kids are all young and they think they're cool because they have new words that I don't get. The other day I said, son, that's dope. He's like, dad, what is dope? Like, it's like cool. He's like, nobody says that anymore. I'm like, well, what's the word? He's like, cracked is the new word. I'm like, that is stupid. <laughs> so if you hear kids say, that's cracked, or yo, that's sweaty, like, just know they like you, I think. <laughs> and I was a youth pastor pretty recently, and I'm already out of the game, which is so sad. It just flies by. But like cool, rad, tight, hip, cool, da, 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 it, it's always changing. Love, that's the word we have to figure out. That's the word we got to use in defining our relationship with God. And we've got to do the work. We've got to be a church that does the work to understand fully the love of God. Why? Because that's the only reason we are saved, because God loved us. In love, he predestined us. Because of love, he saved us. Because of love, his grace rests in our life now. I was praying for you all and just thinking through kind of what makes it hard to understand love. I wrote down a few. First one is kind of obvious because we're sinners. God can't love me because I am blank. I'm a lion, cheating, adulterous, addict. How could he ever love me? So we all just got to confess our sin distorts our mind and makes us think his love can't really be for me. I would just encourage you, the Bible over and over again says, yes and amen, I love you. No matter what current sin you're in. Here's the other thing. This one just makes me sad. We don't have a lot of good earthly examples. Like we have dad wounds, watching Ted Lasso, and that shows phenomenal, but it's mostly about dad wounds in each main character. Like, we what's love like? I feel super spoiled because when I think about love, I just picture my dad, and then I kind of picture Jesus behind him, and I've got two great examples of that's what love is. Where most people I pass are like, 
don't have any image of an earthly example. Here's the other things. Because we love, live in this cutthroat world, this world just sucks. Like, has anyone been online lately to kind of express an opinion or to ask a question or to kind of give your thoughts about something? This world is terrible. Nobody is kind anymore. Nobody is nice. Nobody is loving. Nobody is getting up in the morning like, all right, today's the day I'm going to bless people. I'm going to get online and all I want to do is bless. Everyone's getting up like, you know what I need to do? Tell this world how terrible they are. I'm log into Facebook. All right, who do I start with? Democrats? All right, I'll start with them. <laughs> and if you're above 60, you're like, which of these emails do I need to forward on to my grandkids? Ah, all of them. <laughs> Just stop. 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 We don't know the love of God because we also have bad theology. Every disciple of Jesus has bad theology. His 11 closest that saw every aspect of his life had bad theology. But that's part of discipleship is getting that bad theology out. I just want to remind you, at the core is God's love for you. Here's the other thing. We believe the lie that Satan first started with that God's holding out on us. Like the way I'm going to experience life and love and fullness in this world is apart from the care of my Father in heaven. This is the, the bane of youth ministry. It's a bunch of young people living hypothetical futures thinking, all right, is it faithfulness to God? Ah, it looks lame. All right, I'm going to do all this. But you got two op- We just believe the lie often. And then finally, here's the, I think, the thing that's just going to rest on all of us until we meet Jesus in heaven. Because God's love is unlike anything else that any of us have ever or will ever experience. So how do you live into something that you can't point to another thing to say, it's just like that? Like it, you can point to parents, to a child, it's like that, yes, but I'm fallen dad. It's like a really great marriage, yes, but they married each other for very conditional reasons. That's how you get together. I like her. She looks good. I think he's going to be rich. You're both wrong and it all goes away. <laughs> God's love is unconditional without conditions. There's a great book, Gentle and Lowly, but there's a line in there. Dana Orland says, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through the forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Everyone in this room, Jesus loves until the end. Why are we saved? Because of God's love that we'll spend the rest of our life trying to understand. We are saved because of God's love. Next up, we are saved into God's people. This was the most interesting. When I saw this tweet pop up, I'm like, yes, that's what's missing with a lot of us, with me. We're not just saved and we're all these kind of random individuals waiting for heaven to show up one day. We are saved where? Into the people of God. Where do I see it? Verse 6 there. This is not explicitly where I go to kind of make this point, but it starts to get us in the right direction. Verse six, Paul says this about our salvation. So we're saved by grace because of his love. Verse six, and raised us up, us, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. One of the biggest gaps for me as a teacher preacher early on was how individual I saw the Bible. 
And then I got some software and started to figure out what words actually meant in Greek. And most of the words are plural as we go to stuff in the New Testament. Meaning Paul, the apostles, whoever's writing are writing to the church. It's not like messages that are supposed to be received like personal devotionals. Hey, church, family, you, y'all. God raised us up, seated us. He's doing this for us. We are in this together. The church. Like one of the most beautiful things, we went through Nehemiah just like you. And Nehemiah convicted our people. I had people sign up for membership class. I had people sign up for serving in ways because they're like, I never realized how much the church is a team effort. And Nehemiah was all about, all right, let's link up. Let's do this. We're God's people. And we're going to build this wall. And Nehemiah comes to find out, it looks like it's really about building the people of God as they work together towards the goals God has for them. But this is, he saves you into a people, into a new family, the church. Later on in this Ephesians section, verse 14, Paul unpacks it even more and gets very explicit about the role of the church. He says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made both us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, mainly between Jew and Greeks, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Why did he do all this? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. The church matters way more than I've given a credit for, than people that have influenced you, I'm sure, have given a credit for. The church is what God is doing on this earth. He is making one new man. He's broken down Jew and Gentile. Now he's bringing us into one family. And we don't get to live in that one family reality hypothetically in our heads by ourselves on our computer. We do it with the local church. We are being saved into one family. Paul later on says, you are no longer foreigners or aliens or strangers. You've been brought close. You've been saved into this family, for better, for worse. This is our family. We've been saved into it. I wrote down here, the church is not optional. The church is the family you've been saved into. The church is the family that you will be grown up into. And the church is the family that you're inviting others into. Why? Because we've been saved into the people of God, expressed itself most beautifully and clunkily, if that's a word, in the local church. We are saved into God's people. And then finally, fifth point, five points of salvation, we are saved for God's glory. God doesn't just save us. This was my this was my issue for years. So I came out of a Catholic background. I knew God was there. I knew he was in control. I knew he had his stuff together. I knew he had a lot of rules for us. And I knew I was not that great of a person. I get saved at the end of high school. And I now know he has forgiven me. And I know that one day I'm going to spend eternity with him. But as far as his enjoyment of me and his participation in my life between 18 and whenever I died and went to heaven, I had nothing to fill that in with. Because I was just, it was like he was this judge who said, oh, what? Said the prayer, check, I'll see him one time down the road. 
But God is saving us into a people and he's saving us for his glory. He has good works for us. He has plans for us. Our sin and failure and everything we come into this room with that we regret, he's got a plan for. He's not done. He is the most beautiful artist in all the world. He can take the junk and the mess of our sin and our destruction and make something beautiful for his glory. And we see that at the end of this passage here. Ephesians 2, if you don't have this memorized, this would be a good passage to memorize, 8, 9, and 10. Let's just read it. Let the Spirit speak to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, he, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. That word there is sort of the word for poetry. He saved us. From his wrath. His wrath is now gone. Why did he save us? Because he loves us. How did he save us? By his grace. Well, where is that salvation flushing itself out? In the local church. Well, what's the goal of salvation? What is God doing with a bunch of broken people that are now saved? He is writing poetry. We are God's workmanship to bring him glory with our lives that have been saved by grace because of his love. We are not done yet. He is working something beautiful with our lives. Some of you really need to hear that this morning. I talk to more and more people who are just like, I'm tired. I, they trust Jesus, they love Jesus, but they're just kind of done. And they just want to move on. And they can't wait for heaven. And I would say, God says, you are his workmanship. The best illustration I have of this is this. I wrote a book a while back by a Japanese artist who does this sort of art Anybody ever seen that before? Kintsugi. It's this Japanese art that takes hundreds of years because all the stuff is so slow processing. But it's broken glass, broken porcelain, broken fine stuff, shattered. And then you start to bring it together with lacquer and gold. And it's like the most prized possession for Japanese culture. It's broken pieces put back together in a slow beautiful process governed by an artist making something beautiful the word even means golden repair what is God doing with your life all the broken pieces all the good pieces all the pieces you're proud of all the pieces you wish you could remove he is taking everything and by his grace he has saved you his wrath is gone but he's not done he is writing something beautiful poetry something more beautiful than that one day you're going to see wow God did that. Why? Because you are God's workmanship. You have been saved for his glory. And he's going to get a lot more glory with a bunch of broken pieces than a bunch of fakers who are pretending to be something they're not. We're busted and we're broken. And the only hope I have, we have, is God's grace. That's putting us back together and presenting back to God something glorious. Which of these do you need this morning as you come here? Some of you need to be reminded that his wrath is gone. Some of you live with just the weight of God's anger on your life. And there's not a single passage you could take me to to prove that that wrath is still there if you're in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Some of you just need to be reminded the wrath is gone. His anger was laid out on the cross. 
Some of you need to be reminded of is God's grace. It's not about what you did or didn't do. It's all God's grace. It always has been. There are seasons where it looks like you're doing most of the work, but trust me, it's always been his grace. Some of you need to be reminded that he loves you. Not in any way you'll ever experience from another human, but he unconditionally loves you. Some of you just need to be reminded that the church is the only place you're going to flesh this out in a culture that has no room for Jesus or grace or God or his truth. This is where we need to be with our family. And finally, some of you just need to remember you are a piece of poetry. You've provided a lot of broken pieces for God to work with. And he's doing something beautiful with it. All things are working together for his glory because of his love and his grace. And it's all because he saved us, did all the work, and we just received it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just another look at salvation from another voice. God, we need endless voices and endless time and endless interactions around salvation and grace because we forget our natural thrust of life is not in the direction of being a grace-needy people. We think we are either too messed up or we think we got this. None of us have ever found that sweet spot of just sitting in grace, living in grace, realizing that it's only grace that saved us, that will continue to save us, and is doing something beautiful with our lives. So God, make this truth of salvation the bedrock here and make it attractive to those that you send us to in our lives. So we give credit to you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.